good evening. Jay, you can't be louder than them all the time. <laughs> we know he can, so don't worry about that. We know how loud he can be. Like Jay said, yeah, my name's John. Um, up with Jim about an hour north of here. I was thinking about it. I've known Jay for like around 12 years now. Pray for me. It's a long time being with around this guy. So yeah, we've been up there for three years now. Um, before that, we were actually overseas in Hungary. Uh, we lived over in Hungary for five years, and then actually before that, we were just over here in Middlesex, just over by Piscataway with Pastor Tom Dickerson. So left New Jersey, was happy, and then God brought us back, and we're still happy being back in New Jersey, but we've been here three years now, so it's been uh, three years of adjustment. We landed December 23rd, 2019, and six weeks later, the world shut down, so it was a, a very interesting time of transition coming back, but... Thankful to be here tonight. Um, again, working over at the Bible College, my heart, my wife's heart truly is, I mean, you guys, young adults, young men and women who are not only figuring out the insanity of the world we live in, but exactly not only who we are in Christ, but what is he calling us to do in this life? Because as much as he has a call on us in the big picture, the fact that you're awake, that you're breathing, that you're alive, he has a call for you even today. Tomorrow when you wake up, he has a call for you tomorrow. So... Really a, a big heart of ours is helping men and women learn not only who the Lord has made them to be, but what he is making them into. So tonight we're actually going to be in Hebrews 12. Uh, we're just going to be looking at two verses. First two verses, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And really the, the verses lean themselves. It's, it's, it's a bifold message. It's, you know, the application of faith or it's moving ahead in faith. And then it's also looking at Jesus. So... Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I'm going to pray because I need more prayer than, than most, and then we'll dive right into the text. Lord, thank you for being, for being with us here tonight, Lord. Thank you that we can set aside this time, that we can still our hearts before you, that we can focus our minds, Lord, on you. Lord, I pray that you would give understanding tonight, Lord, as we go through this text. Just a couple short verses, Lord, but there's so much in there that I think you want us to hear, that I think you want us to learn tonight. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us now. You would go before us, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I love biblical history, and I love biblical context. Without context, there's not a lot of understanding. So, to kind of set the stage here for, for Hebrews, Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers. These Jewish believers embraced their Messiah. Jesus arrives. He fulfills all that God had promised. And then he is that promised Messiah, and many Jewish believers are turning to him and embracing him. They now know and they understand that the fulfillment of Judaism is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, because they have gone all in, because they have jumped in with both feet, because they have cast their lot with Jesus, and now they identify themselves with him, they are beginning to feel the backlash. They are beginning to doubt their faith. They're beginning to walk away. They're beginning to become dull towards the word of God, even some despising the word of God. So the author of Hebrews, he sits down and he writes this exhortation to stay close to Jesus. It's an exhortation that is addressed to true believers, to men and women who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have asked for, of, his repent, of his forgiveness, they have repented, and they, now they believe on him for eternal life and that gift of grace. God is exhorting you and I both to stay strong, 
He's exhorting you to keep your eyes on the Lord. He is exhorting you that you have made the best decision that you could make in this world by choosing him. And these two verses that we're going to look at, they come as a wrap-up, as an application of the great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11. In chapter 11, faith is mentioned or alluded to 23 times in that one chapter. It gives us an example of what faith looks like in the life of a person. Person after person, faithful men, faithful women, running the race that was set before them, and they finished well. They had no Bible. They had no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no baptism of the Spirit, no technology, no New Testament, no New Covenant, and yet they endured. And how did they finish? By faith. The same way you and I are going to finish this race of faith, this race of life, through faith. Their lives and their stories, they should revive us. They should be a, a drink of cold water to our soul. So tonight we're going to read that we are in a race. When you and I were born again, when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we immediately entered into this race of faith. Our life changed. And now our motive for living is to please and glorify the Father. The author uses this picture, this metaphor, to describe our life. So we're going to read both verses and then we'll kind of dissect them as we go through. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're starting with therefore, obviously therefore points back. So it's because of what, we, what was read in chapter 11, because of this great hall of faith, realizing that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now here's what I think it does not mean. I could be wrong, but it's my opinion, it's my time, and you have to listen to me right now. As we grow in the Lord and as we read this verse, there's a challenge to us to walk in faith. And I think that we think part of the challenge is that there's a bunch of guys up in heaven, up in the spiritual realm, standing around watching us, kind of cheering us on, the grandstands of heaven, as it were. When I turn away from this sin or when I change my attitude, when I make a right decision in my life, Moses or Abraham or Samson, they're there watching from the heavenlies, cheering us on. But you know, there are other days that I wish they would just kind of look away for a moment. Don't watch everything I do. Don't see everything that I'm thinking, that I'm, that I'm acting out. There are times in our lives that we wish there weren't witnesses, in a sense. There are those who say, since this is likened to a race, that what it means is that in the stands or in the stadium, there are all those who have gone on to glory before us, who are witnessing, who are watching our pilgrimage, and watching us walk out our faith. I don't believe that's what this means. If you want to, that's fine. I don't. I think what it means is, seeing that we are surrounded by such a tremendous testimony, or a legacy of those who have walked in faith, the word that is used here for witness, it's actually never used anywhere else in the New Testament. 
and it's not used in reference to someone that is standing around watching something else. It's not used in the sense of watching or witnessing something, that I was an eyewitness to seeing something happen. It's used in the sense of those who testify, who have an experiential, in a sense, they got skin in the game. They lived it so they can watch how you are living it. They're not just watching, they're critiquing, judging, and in a sense with a notepad and taking notes on your life. Their life has been lived out before yours, and as their life was lived out, now your life has a model, has an example to be living after as well. I think what it's really saying is this. Realizing that you and I are surrounded by this great testimony of Old Testament and New Testament believers, believers throughout church history, those found in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, there are thousands of pilgrims who have gone on before us, and they have walked this walk of faith, and they have walked the walk of faith in light of great triumph, and great challenge, and great opportunity. And they have faithfully walked in light of sickness and persecution and hardship and unanswered prayer. Seeing then that there are so many that we are surrounded by that testified that you can live in this present world in light of these things that you are hoping for. What is faith again? The substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. That you can gear your life toward the future and the eternal realm and we are surrounded by the testimony of those men and women that have done that. Now, seeing or realizing that, let's go and do certain things. And to me, that changes the entire approach to that text. It's not just a group of, of Bible heroes up there watching us and in a sense critiquing us or cheering us on or you know the, the heavenly booze when we mess up. No, we have their lives that we can look at because Hebrews 11 gives us an example of all their lives. Hebrews 11 lays out for all of us, these, these men and these women, and how they lived out their life. Now, because of those lives that were lived out, now we can go do certain things. We sometimes look at Abraham, at Moses, at Abel, at Noah, at Elijah, as more spiritual or more divine men. However, the Bible tells us in James that Elijah was a man of like passion. He was a guy that struggled with doubt and depression. One day he was taking down the prophets of Baal, and the next day he was running around from Jezebel saying, woe is me. This is a guy that wrestled with depression. And he prayed, and it stopped raining for three and a half years. The encouragement there in our prayer life is here is a human being just like you and me. Elijah had to live out his life of faith before God the Father, just like you and I have to live out our faith before him as well. It's telling us that the things that were accomplished in their walk of faith were for the purposes of God. So the things that you accomplish in your walk of faith are also for the purposes, the plans, and the glory of God. Hebrews 11 could have laid out all the flaws, all the missteps. It doesn't go through the failures. It doesn't go through the flaws of the characters. We have this amazing lineage of men and women, and we must remember that they were just as human and no more divine than we are. And they continued in their earthly pilgrimage, and they walked by faith, the same way that we walk every day of our lives. And I don't know about you, but that brings me a lot of great comfort, thinking of all my, my favorite Bible heroes, they had to walk out their life of faith the same way I do every day, all day, 
until the Lord called them home. And every day they had to make a choice, just like every day we have to make a choice. Every day when we wake up, we have to choose one of two things, our sin nature or our sanctified identity in Christ. And it's a choice. Some days it's easy. Some days it's really hard. Some days it's confusing. Some days we look at the circumstances of our life and we want to look at the, the, the temporary circumstances that we exist in and we want to try to make sense of a divine God in these temporary circumstances. It doesn't work that way. It's not supposed to make sense. August 14th, 2014, I was on a mission trip to Hungary. And I had my, and that was the day that I received the call for my family to move. My youngest at that time was eight months old. My oldest was five. That was in August, and we landed in Hungary January 15th, 2015. It doesn't make sense, but it's not supposed to. If you can rationalize, if you can tangibly understand faith, you have no need for God or the Holy Spirit. It's not supposed to make sense to us. We're supposed to be obedient to it. And one thing that we, we, me and my wife, that we teach our kids is obedience has to be immediate. If it's not immediate, it's no longer obedience, it's convenience. And we are not called to be convenient Christians. We are called to be obedient Christians, which means there's an immediacy in the way that we live, the way that we act, and the way that we respond. And if you think that the immediacy of, of obedience is an option, you have chosen the life of convenient Christianity. And a convenient Christian is one that lives their life of faith on their own terms, not in the terms that the Lord has laid out for them. So we have this lineage, we have these men, we have these women that have gone on to faith before us, that have left for us an example. I don't want to sound critical and I don't want to compare, but I think if we looked at the life of, oh, I don't know, Moses compared to our life today, I think we got a little bit easier. You can pick any of them from that chapter. And I think we have it a little bit easier today than any of those men or women did. And yet they were faithful to the end. As D.L. Moody put it, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was a somebody. Then he spent the next 40 years of his life realizing he's a nobody. And he spent the last 40 years of his life learning how a nobody with Jesus can be a somebody. And we have to look at our lives and understand that we are in a season, a time, you might be in a, in a more of a wilderness season, yet Moses was still faithful in the wilderness. He might be in the moment where you're on your Sinai, you're on that mountaintop experiencing and encountering the living God. And all you want to do is stay there with him, but you can't because he has things for you to do. And you have to go out in his power and in his might, in his glory for his purposes. Maybe you're down in the camp and you have a golden calf set up. Maybe he's saying it's time for you to clean those things up because I have something else for you. But the encouragement is we have examples of men and women that have done that. We have an entire book of example that we can look to and say, okay, they did it, so can I. So since we have this cloud of witnesses, what are we to do? We are to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. So because of that, because of the, the witnesses realizing that, realizing we are part of the same human race, we are 
to extend our faith towards God, let us lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us put those things aside. The analogy here is from the Olympiad. The games in that day of the athletes and how they would train. Even sometimes today how athletes train, they add weight to them while they're training. And then when it's time to compete, they would remove the weight and they were able to move freer, faster. They would be stronger. They removed the weight that was ensnaring them and they were able to run more efficiently and effectively. They were able to be faster in their race. What it's saying here is that we have to lay aside the things that are hindering us. And this is talking about our life of faith. So what are weights? And that's an important question that we have to ask here. We have to talk about it because your weights are not my weights. My weights are not your weights. The idea is that the weight that may hinder us isn't necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily a bad weight. In other words, we can look at our lives and we can see a whole mess of stuff that aren't necessarily wrong, but they are things that if I was complete competing in the Olympics, I would put aside. Because they are things that they are not wrong in and of themselves, but they are slowing us down. One of my favorite expositors, G. Campbell Morgan, said, there are times when we can spend unnecessary time with necessary things. Think back to the story of Gideon. How do you separate the men that went and got water? 9,700 men got down like a dog and they put their face in the water and they lapped it up. 300 men knelt down and they pulled the water up to their face. Water was necessary. It was needed. But 300 men did not spend unnecessary time on something that was necessary. Where 9,700 men were so fixated on it, they spent an unnecessary amount of time on something that was necessary. One of the biggest things that I use in my life to check myself on that, I left it back there as a screen time report. How much time am I spending on this thing? How much unnecessary time am I on any device? Even though it's a necessity in this life, go a week without any smart device. You're lost in a sense in this world. It's a necessity now. But are we spending unnecessary time on something that is a necessity? Are we allowing that to become a hindrance to us? Because it's a choice. Not necessarily a bad thing. It might be a bad thing for you in your life, but not necessarily a bad thing. Yet it could become a weight that pulls us and slows us down. I can't judge your weights. You have to know them. In this race, we are individuals. There might be something I'm fine with that really stumbles you. Or it might make you struggle. Or it might be something you're even addicted to. The idea here is self-examination. If we are going to move ahead in faith, you and I have to examine our own individual lives and take those things that might slow us down if we really want to do our best for Jesus and put them aside. And there's a lot of if statements in there because that's exactly what it is. If you want to do your best for Jesus, if you're sincere and serious about this walk, and if you care enough to lay them aside, you will. You have to make that choice. Nobody can make it for you. It's because we know that we would be freer, stronger, quicker in our life of faith without them. And we have to ask the question, do I want to be stronger in my faith or am I okay being mediocre in it? 
We might be better off. We would be better off with another hour in prayer, another hour of reading the Bible. You know, we call it devotions, right? Our devos in the morning. We check that box. We can move on with our life saying we're a good Christian for the day. But I really look at that word and talk in devotion. Okay, I'm a husband. Been married for 18 years. I consider myself a devoted husband. So let's use the same chronology that we give to the Lord with my wife. I only talk to my wife 30 minutes a day. Would you say that's a good devoted husband? Why are we okay doing that to God? If you were to look at a husband or a wife that only speaks to their spouse 30 minutes, 45 minutes a day, there would be a, you would be appalled in a sense like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you love them? But yet we're okay doing that with our God. We're okay doing that with the, per- with the one person that gives us life every day. We get to that point of we've hit the cultural, the social, the accepted norm. Check that box and move on. And I'm faithful. How faithful are you? Man, I stretched. I went 35 minutes today. And yeah, I make light of it, but you all get the point. We say we're devoted until we start really looking at the chronology of it. One of my mentors would say, every day you get $24. You have 20, you know, 24 hours in a day. How do you spend your money? And this is when we were over in Bible college. So it's like, all right, if you need a lot of sleep, say, you know, you're a college student and you're like, I need sleep. So you got 10 hours of sleep. That would be amazing if I got 10 hours of sleep. So that's 10 bucks. You got 14 left. Okay, if you're a full-time student, how many hours a day are you in classes plus homework? Let's just call it six. So you got $8 left. Okay, you got to eat, right? Call it an hour for each meal. You got five bucks left. Well, you have social, you have relational, you have all these other things. And then you get to a point of going, wow, I got 50 cents left. I got a half hour left. Well, I guess I can give that to God. Now, I look at my life, and I, I, right now I'm full-time dad, full-time pastor, full-time student, full-time teacher. A lot going on. So what do I have to learn? I have to learn how to live with less sleep because I only have 24 hours to spend. And if I want to keep spending 10 of my hours on sleep, something's going to give. Am I going to sacrifice my wife, my kids, my career, my education pursuits, or my faith? Something's going to give. And since my kids and my wife and everything is in front of me, it's harder to say no to them. So it's, sorry, God, I just, I got really busy today. Tomorrow I'll do better. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And it is something that will easily ensnare us and weigh us down. We can always negotiate the way we use God's time and the way we use our resources and our health, and we could always be better off for the kingdom of God living in a certain way. I can justify it all day long. We tend to have a lot of stuff in this life that we don't need. I, that just it, To me, it will never leave my mind. When we, we touched down, again, December 23rd, 2019, a family of six, we had 12 check suitcases and 10 carry-ons, and that's all we owned. Now we got a house that I would need a truck to move. Within three years, we went from 12 suitcases to an entire house. We got stuff that we don't need practically. Now, how much stuff emotionally, mentally, spiritually do we carry around that it's just that stuff? Spiritually, we need to be trimming down, to be removing the excess so that we are more free, more able to move about this life 
to be the men and the women that he has created us to be. What if tonight God said, hey, I need you to move to Sri Lanka in three months? It would freak you out. 90 days, I got too much going on, God. I got too much to take care of. I have too much stuff that I can't be obedient. When it's convenient, I'll be obedient. No one else, though, can judge your weight. You have to look at yourself. You have to examine yourself and use the mirror of the scriptures to say, show to me what's going on. So we have to remove the weights. The second thing is to remove the sin that so easily ensnares us. Again, the only time in the New Testament this phrase is used, not before, not after. And it's interesting to read the ways that different commentators put this or the way that they work this out. They would say that it's sin that you are inclined to or sin that is left in good standing. I'll call them the Velcro sins, the things that kind of stick to us pretty easily. And as we consider it, I don't think it's the big bad sin that we're talking about here. They're the little sins that we know they need to go, just not right now. They aren't affecting anybody else, so we play with it a little here, a little there, and it's really only between me. Someday it's got to go, just not yet. I think in all of our lives there are sin that are left in good standing that we know by conviction need to go, but it's not convenient yet, so we can't be obedient yet. You may think this little sin doesn't affect anybody else, but in reality it does. You may be a much better man or woman without it, and that would greatly affect all of us. 10 more people, 20 more people, 50 more people on fire for Jesus Christ with no compromise, you better believe it's going to affect all of us. So we're to lay aside the weight and the sin. And then what are we to do? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That race is an individual thing. Realize that Christians are not in competition with one another. You are not running against each other. You have a lane to run in. I have a lane to run in. You can't run in somebody else's lane. My daughter runs track. You can't cross over. You got to stay in your lane. You are a runner, you're not a judge. And you have a race that is set out before you. 2 Timothy 4.7 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And I look at that as a very progressive statement. You fight, you finish, and you keep the faith. The author of Hebrews saw that God had a plan for his individual life. And many times in the, the Olympiad, you ran on a course that has been laid out for you and you've run against the clock. You're not necessarily running against the person on your left or the right. You're running against the clock, really. Just like they're running against the clock. And they're trying to make sure that their clock is shorter in time than your clock. We all have a clock. We all have a time. Either he's going to call us home or he's going to come and get us. We all have a clock on our life that we are running against. And as individuals, as Christians, God has a plan for your individual life. And who you are playing or running against is yourself. Don't complain about what other certain people have because you'll always find the person you have the most trouble with is that traitor that lives within. You and I are going to move ahead in faith. 
And if we are going to do it with endurance, we have to consider that other people have done it and what God has called them to do without excuse. Yeah, we know that throughout the Bible there have been the men and the women that have complained and whatnot, but they lived their life of faith to the end. Now, it says that we're to run with endurance, and that endurance may need to be there because of maybe cancer, maybe marital problems, maybe because of issues with kids or with parents, maybe because of someone in your life that you love dearly is turning away. We may need endurance because God has opened up in front of us such great opportunity that we don't have enough physical strength to keep up with it and to keep up with the things that he has set before us. The overall idea here is to run with patience. It's a struggle. It's difficult at times, but if we are going to go against the grain of the world, it takes time. It's like a fish swimming upstream. It doesn't happen quickly. It happens slowly. It happens over time. It happens methodically. And yet eventually that fish swimming upstream will get to where they are trying to get to. It just takes a while. If we are going to move ahead in faith, it means doing it in such a way that we are willing to set aside the things of this world and all of its pleasures and all of its fun and with endurance set our course for Christ and everlasting life. Now, when we run into problems, and I say when because what does Jesus tell us? In this world, you will have what? Trials and tribulation. It's the suck of life, as I put it. You will have junk to deal with. It's a promise. But what else is a promise? He's already overcome it all. So when you face hardship, when we run out of energy, when we struggle in this race, we have an answer waiting for us in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Again, looking, it's, it's relating back to the race. That phrase there, looking or realizing or knowing, can sometimes mean just to casually glance at. Sometimes it means to inspect. Sometimes it means to look at with understanding. But here, the better way for it to be written is ever looking off onto Jesus. It speaks as though as he's at the finish line, and that's where we need to set our eyes. Not at the race around us, not at our lane, tell my daughter all the time when she runs, the worst thing she could do is look down at her feet. you got to look ahead at the farthest point you can and run to that. And we have for us right here the farthest thing that we can look to, Christ at the finish. The idea here carries with it focusing or staring, specifically staring with amazement. It means Jesus Christ has come into focus in your life to the degree that you've forgotten all about all the other things that are around you. They have blurred out. And what you have in your focus is Jesus Christ, ever looking off onto Jesus. Notice here that the author, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the author and the finisher of the Christian faith. It's not just your faith. It's not just my faith. It is our faith. It is the faith. He is the Savior of the world, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And He is the one who will be waiting for us at the finish line where there is an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away that is reserved for each and every one of us. 
Now, he wouldn't reserve those streets of gold, those walls of jewels, our eternal home, unless we are going to get there. That's where we can have hope. He who has begun a good work in us will continue until the day of Christ. He will continue to conform us into his image and into his likeness. He will keep his hand on our life. He will bring us home. I think often we we look at verse 2 as more of the example than the illustration. Jesus was not a believer in the sense that you and I are believers. He was not our example in the sense that he had to believe there was a God who needed to save him. He didn't need to believe that. He was that. He is a high priest who understands our shortcomings. But I think what he's saying to us is, as we desire to set aside the weights in our lives and the sins in our life, and as we are enduring, when you are running out of gas and your endurance level is low and you don't think you can go onward, You are in a position then of ever looking off onto Jesus. And you will remember that he is your sustainer. He is your savior. He is your healer. He is your strengthener. He is your strong tower. He is your rear guard. And he is the only one that can sustain you in this life. In the race of life, he is the one that gives us the strength to do it every day. Every day. Now in my life, I can see him even through my wife and through my kids. I can wake up in the morning and one of his daughters is is lying next to me. Why? I don't know. Because he's decided to bless me as a steward over one of his precious kids until we go home. This relationship with my wife has an expiration date. But as my sister in Christ, it's eternity. So I have an opportunity to focus on one of two things, the temporal relationship that will eventually end or the eternal relationship as her brother in Christ and say, let's focus on that. And Jesus, through that, gives us the strength, the endurance, the excitement of every day living our lives fully for him. And as we do that as husband and wife, our kids get to see, get to watch, get to experience and be part of a house where Jesus is the sustainer. He doesn't just ask us to lay aside the sin and endure this Christian pilgrimage without involving himself personally in our life and giving us the strength to do the things that he is asking us to do. He will not give you something that he does not also equip you to do. Ever looking off onto Jesus. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy. I think that the joy that was set before him, you and I. Several months before he was crucified, Jesus was walking in Solomon's portico in John 10. That would be the place where within six months... 3,000 new believers would be standing and listening to the apostles coming together to meet. I think Jesus, not that long before his crucifixion, was walking, was walking there mulling it over in his mind, knowing what was going to happen. But for the joy that was coming in those six months, he endured the cross and despised its shame. 
the joy that was before him. And how do I know this? John 17, 24. Father, I desire. This is the only time where we actually find Jesus stating his will. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What is the will of Jesus? That they that you gave me will be with me. His desire, his will is for us to be with him. And for that joy, he endured the cross. Every other time, Jesus is communicating and yielding to the will of the Father. But the only time we find Jesus stating his own desire, what he wants, it's us. I think if we perceive him in that way, we are encouraged. And while we are enduring, our hearts can be encouraged. And we realize the one who we are serving is the one who loves us graciously and who is willing to look past all of our faults. Again, Hebrews 11 could have brought in all the failings of these pillars of faith, but it didn't. It gave us examples. It gave us a testimony to look at. Same thing in our lives. We could even sit and critique and tear down our own lives. Or we can ultimately sit and think, what is the desire of Jesus himself? Me, you, us, even with all of our failings. In our endurance, if we are struggling and we look off onto Jesus, we find his hand there to strengthen us, to encourage us, to lead us onward and to make us able to finish our course, and to be presented faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. It's us. So I'm going to share a story real quick before I wrap it up. Because for me, it, 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 there was a time where I was like, how do I continue to look for Jesus? And he gave me one of the greatest Moments, the greatest times in my life. It was actually March of 2018, so not that long ago, but it was a time that I'll never forget and I'll always hold on to. So as missionaries, we lived off of support. And our prayer was always, Lord, give us the amount that we need to cover our bills. When we lived in Budapest, we had rent, we had car insurance, we had electrical utilities, we had gas, we had bills to pay, cell phone, internet, normal stuff. Being a missionary doesn't mean that you just sit around and let people pay for you to live and you just drink coffee and talk about Jesus. See, there's real responsibilities to it. So our prayer was always, Lord, give us enough support to cover what we've to cover our commitments, and then whatever's left will trust you. So March of 2018 came, our, our support came in. We paid all of our bills, rent, utilities, cell phone, internet, car insurance, paid everything. And as a family of six, we had $16 left for food for the rest of the month. So we sat our four kids down, and we are not ones where we hide the, the difficult things of life from them. We bring them in. We say, we got a problem, kids. We have, a, we have an issue here, and we need to see Jesus. And we told them. We said, we have 
and my son, my son is probably the one of the most generous people I've ever met and probably ever will meet. At that time, he was eight. And so he went upstairs and he got $5 that he had. And he goes, here, I hope this helps. I'm like, nope, put it away. I said, nope. I said, it's, I said and as a husband, as a father, one of, the, one of the most difficult things that I ever experienced in my life as a missionary was I couldn't do anything to provide for my family. I couldn't go pick up an extra shift, couldn't go work overtime, couldn't get a second job, couldn't work. I couldn't go provide. I had to trust for provision. So March of 2018, $16. And so we sit him down. It was a Sunday after church. Because my wife and I, we were at church, and it was, you know, what are we going to do? So we get home, and we sit him down, and we say, kids, we have to look to Jesus because we don't have another way. My daughter was in gymnastics, and so that Tuesday when we went to gymnastics, in March in, in Hungary, it's always gray and windy and just gross. So it was very windy. It looked more like a, a nasty fall day than it was in the winter. And so we go to gymnastics, and as we're walking in, um, I thought it was a leaf, but I look under my, our front tire, and it was, it was a 10,000 forint bill, which is $50. And we made our budget, as a family of six, we lived off of $50 a week for food. So I get there, and it's like, all right, what is that? Oh, it's a 10,000 bill. It's 50 bucks. So my daughter was fluent. She was one of our translators. So... Um, we go into gymnastics. She talks to all the coaches, talks to all the parents, and talks to everyone in there. We give it to the coaches, and we say, someone lost some money. At the end of the night, the coaches came up, and we're like, nobody came for it. It's yours. Keep it. Fifty bucks. Looking unto Jesus for the first week. Second week of the month, we always had a home fellowship. We always had all the students over. We would have anywhere from 20 to 50, 18 to 24-year-olds in our house every week. Not cheap but we did it because our house was a house of ministry. So it was the second week, it was a Monday night. Monday night, you know, a bunch of them come over, and one of the interns comes up, and uh, her name was Camille, and she's like, I don't know what this is, but there was an envelope with your guys' name on my pillow, so here, it's a $50 bill. Enough for the week. Third week of the month. Again, no idea how or what or why. One of the other missionaries that on, on our team um, she called us up and she's like, hey, uh, I've been, you know, I, I got really blessed and I got, a, I got some extra groceries. Can I drop them off? Like, sure. Thinking, all right, anything will help. She showed up with six bags of groceries. Enough for the week and more. Last week of the month, it was a Sunday. We came back from church. We still don't know to this day what, what it was, but there was eight bags of groceries on her doorstep. No idea where they came from. No idea who did it. But every week, the Lord provided for the week. And at the end of it, my, at that time, she would have been three. Yeah, my Abigail would have been three. And I'll never forget. And she looks up and goes, did we see Jesus this month? Ever looking off onto Jesus. There are so many things in this life that demand our attention, that demand our focus, that demand our eyes to be set on them. And yet we are told to look at one thing. Psalm 108 says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Here's the catch. It's not your definition of wickedness. It's his. You can change the definition all day long. It doesn't mean it's right. You can decide to filter your life by looking at whatever you want. It doesn't mean it's right. We are told where to look. Look unto Jesus. 
And as you look unto Jesus, his faithfulness not only becomes real intellectually, but experientially, and you can never go back. I will never again in my life worry about provision, ever. I don't care what it is. Even now, I have four kids in private Christian school. I don't pay a dime. I don't know how. We don't know who is covering their tuition. Someone is. I still don't know. It's not my problem. I look to Jesus. There are going to be so many things every day, all day, that demand your focus. And there's only one thing that you should ever give it to. So let us get rid of the weights and the sins that might hold us back. Let's move ahead in faith. Let's run with endurance the particular specific race, the course that God has set out for you. Because our eternal rewards will be in proportion to our faithfulness and to what he has given us to do. And when we get weary, when we are tired, in those times we should ever be looking off onto Jesus. And he will strengthen us. He will carry us. He will lead us. He is the one who began this work in your life and he'll be the one to finish it. You cannot finish off your life of faith. He will. Stop trying. Hebrews 4 says, be diligent to enter into his rest. Work to enter rest. It sounds weird, but it completely makes sense because the work that we are to be doing is found in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. It's the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword to consider the text every day, all day. And as we consider that, and as we are diligent to enter into him, we are entering into his rest. And as we enter into his rest, we can run with endurance because he is the one sustaining us and maintaining us in the life that he has called us and given us to live. And what blows my mind out of all of this is the joy that was set before him is us. We are the reason. We are the desire. We are the will of our Savior, his relationship with us. And as you are devoted to him, I challenge you in what devotion truly means. I did it for, I was going to try to do it for a week, and I didn't even get through one day before she got upset. I told my wife, I said, I really want to, I, I, it was an object lesson. I said, I really want to understand devotion. So I'm only going to talk to you as much as I talk to God in the morning. And I tried doing it. I didn't get it through one day before. She's like, nope, nope. Spend more time with him because I need you more. I tried. Lasted maybe until lunch. Ever looking off onto Jesus. Stop looking at the things that have, a, have an expiration date. Look unto the one thing that's eternal. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful that we can have this time, Lord. Time in your word. Time focused on you, Lord. Lord, even if it's just for a few minutes, Jesus, thank you for letting us look unto you tonight. Lord, I pray, Father, that, Lord, the, the words of John, that they would go away. But the words, Lord, of everlasting life would remain. And Lord, you would use the words tonight by your spirit to encourage, to challenge, to draw us unto yourself and to run this race of endurance, looking unto you. 
We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.